19, we've just seen in chapter 17 the uh, fall of Babylon, uh, the false church, and uh, in chapter 18 the fall of, uh, of uh, Babylon, the commercial uh, um, woman that uh, is contrary to Christ. And today we're looking at really just an incredible chapter. And I'm praying that God will use this and that we'll just have a lot of fun with this and enjoy ourselves as we worship God as we read and study this. But I'd like to read it first, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 19. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are His judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of His servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! And the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen! Hallelujah! Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, both small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing water and like the loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, were given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has his name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And the rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. 
Father, once again, we just ask that you would speak and Holy Spirit, that you would take my words in my mouth and help me in some way to convey these very powerful and joyful words in such a way that honors you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. With chapter 17 and 18 as a background, we have been taken from weeping and mourning to joyful worship and praise. From darkness and doom to light and deliverance, from woes to a series of jubilant announcements. In Revelation 18.20, there was a call to rejoice over Babylon's fall, and Revelation 19 is God's answer, and the answer of all heaven to that call to rejoice. John begins in verse 1, and he says that he heard this tremendous sound, saying, Hallelujah! The word hallelujah is actually a compound word. The first part of it is hallelujah. It's the command form of praise God or praise, give praise. And the last part of it is a shortened form, jah, of God or Yahweh. And so combined it means praise God. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not like if you have time or you feel like it. But these heavenly hosts are crying out. The saints are crying out, hallelujah. To praise God. I know we don't do this very often. But I want you to join me. And I want you to just shout it out. Because we've got a lot to praise God about. And so I want you to say it. Hallelujah! Hallelujah. Okay, well that was a nice effort and a good try. It was a beginning. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! That honors the Lord. Isn't there something just that kind of leaps in you just saying it? Say it again. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Praise God. I'm going to be counting on you here and there along the way to help me out. So you be ready to worship God. But these heavenly hosts, these saints described in chapter 7, verse 9 through 12, are crying out to worship God. The interesting thing is is that this word in all of the Bible is only mentioned four times. And you know where they are? All four of them are within the first six verses of this chapter. They're all right here. It's the only place where it's described quite like this in the New Testament. And so what are they praising God for? Well, he tells us, for the salvation and glory and power because they alone belong to God. No one can offer these things. No one else offers salvation. No one else can forgive sins. He alone is worthy of our glory and praise and He alone is all-powerful, fulfilling every word, every single promise. And John goes on and records these words because his judgments are just and true. And what are his judgments? Well, we're told right here in the passage that he condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. And we've studied her. We know what she's done. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. These are, of course, the many martyrs who lost their lives because of their loyalty and their allegiance to Jesus Christ. Now, really, this is an answer to prayer. If you remember, in Revelation chapter 6.10, we had these martyred saints under the altar of God crying out and saying, Lord, how long must we wait until our blood is avenged? Do you remember? It's been a while. But they're crying out and they're saying, How long, O Lord? And chapter 19, 17, 18, and 19 are God's answer to that prayer. They had to wait a while. Prayers like that sometimes. God always answers. Not always immediately, but He always, always answers prayer. We can always count on Him. He's faithful. 
And so these martyred saints are rejoicing because their blood has been avenged. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Oh, that was wonderful. This is good. I'm going to enjoy this sermon. The smoke of her goes up forever and ever and ever. Now, the 24 elders, uh, they are praise warriors. And so are the four living creatures. And anytime anybody says, praise God, it's not just a suggestion, right? Hallelujah, it's the command form, the plural command form. All of you, praise God. And so... uh, The 24 elders and the four living creatures don't want to be left out. They never do. As we see over and over in Revelation 4.10, 5.8, 5.14, 11.16, these guys are flat on their faces before God, worshiping. And if you recall, the word worship is proskuneo in the Greek. It means to prostrate yourself before God. It's not like a, a passive sit in the chair and, well, you're wonderful. No, it's not like that. It's down on your face before God Almighty and worshiping Him as he deserves. And they say something interesting here. They're crying it out. They're not mumbling. They're yelling. And they say, Amen! Now, does anybody know what Amen means? So be it. Or, I'm in total agreement. And so, if you're praying and you're a new believer and you kind of wondered what the Amen was, it's not just like the end. It actually means, it means, so be it! I totally agree with that prayer. May God answer it. And so they are all over this praise and worship of these saints saying, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! And then they themselves say, Amen! We agree! Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Oh, this is wonderful. This is, I'm getting built up just hearing this and encouraged. And so they are worshiping God themselves. And then John says in verse 5 that another voice came from the throne and we know it's not God or Jesus. We're not sure who it is. But it comes from the throne and it says, Praise our God, which is really another version of hallelujah. And he says, All you his servants. So he's saying, All the servants anywhere. All in the heavenly host, in the heavenly realms, and certainly for us as well. If we belong to God and have, as those young people were encouraging us, pledging our allegiance to Jesus Christ, then we are God's servants. It says, Also you who fear him, both small and great, praise him. Praise Him. Honor His name. Bring glory to Him. Thank Him. I've shared before that my prayer life used to consist of a lot of requests and it's gradually shifted more and more toward a whole lot of praise and worship and thanksgiving. I still make requests, but I just seem to be absorbed in worship and and when I am and I'm done, it's like I don't really have very many requests left because I just know God's going to take care of all of them. I still ask Him, but... My list is shorter as I worship Him and realize who He is. And so this voice says that we are to praise God, you who fear Him. And we've talked about this word fear again, but I'll touch on it. It's the word phobeo in Greek, where we get our word, English word phobia from. You know, some people think of fear of God as, like, as a wonder or an awe of God, but that's not what the word in Greek means. It includes that, but it goes beyond that. It means to have a dread of displeasing God, a wholesome dread of displeasing God. And we know from Proverbs 8.13 that to fear the Lord is to hate evil. So if we really love God, if our allegiance is really to God, then we will hate evil and we will want to turn away from evil. If we don't, then we haven't yet come to fear God. And the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So if you want to be wise, if you want to be God-honoring, 
if you want to be a light in darkness, if you want your heart to be on fire and totally in love with Jesus, then we must be, first of all, servants of God, those called by His name, and secondly, those who don't want to displease Him, but only do the things that bring Him honor and glory. Now, John in verse 6, here's another multitude talking about the marriage of the Lamb. John says that he heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing water and the sound, uh, like the loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Okay, let's do that again. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Thank you, Lord. We do worship you this morning and praise you. This is fun. I just, this is really good. So they cry out themselves, Hallelujah to God. Why? For the Lord our God Almighty reigns. He is taking His rightful place finally over the earth. Right now the Bible says that, that Satan is the God of this age. And we can see the effect of His rulership everywhere around us. Death, discouragement, destruction, aimlessness. You fill in the blanks. This is not God's plan. And so the time is coming when He will once again begin to reign and rule. And he began that process all the way through the judgments that we've studied from chapter 6 on. And it's coming to a, a mighty climax in this chapter uh, 19. And they say, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Now, we know who the groom is. It's Jesus. The question is, who is the bride? Well, there's some people that have different views on this, but... Uh, I believe that the bride is the church. But I also believe, based on Matthew chapter 8, 11, and other texts in the Bible, that it extends beyond the church to include all the redeemed saints of all the ages. And so this whole collection of mankind, those men and women and young people, from the ages uh, past all the way until the coming of Christ, the rapture of the church, will be included in this bride. Now, to understand the significance of the wedding supper, I want to back up just a little bit and explain to you the three phases or three stages in marriage in John's day. The first was betrothal, which is kind of like our engagement. The next is the presentation, where they're actually uh, 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 married. And then finally, the marriage feast. Now, the betrothal stage was an interesting uh, stage. It's very much like I said, our engagement, except different. Um, it was arranged by contract most often. Most often it was arranged by the, the uh, father of the groom. The groom would find someone that he really liked and the father would make arrangements uh, to, have that, uh, to have those two people join together. Now, interestingly, it often happened when they were just young kids, you know, like in their early teens or sometimes even younger. Sometimes it would happen in, in uh, uh, you know, seven, eight years old. And they would pick for their uh, son... Uh, a young lady that they felt would be appropriate for their son. And so this, uh, this party involved a contract that was drawn up between the fathers and, uh, and then often there was a payment of, the, of a dowry, oftentimes, uh, sometimes by the, by the uh, young lady's family and sometimes by the uh, family of the groom. And uh, the marriage wasn't consummated at this point and uh, it was a, a long engagement period, in fact, that usually lasted at least a year. And during this engagement period, they would just get to know each other. They would spend time together, uh, and of course, if they were young, they would have to wait even longer than a year uh, for that marriage to take place. But during this time of engagement, the young man or the, the gentleman, uh, the groom, would begin to prepare a place for his family. 
And in the preparation phase of that uh, work, it would most often be attached to his father's house. And so he would begin to extend off of the father's house and during that year period begin building his own little palace for his family. And so um, it took some time. Now the woman was preparing herself as well. Uh, there's quite an extensive process of purification and just getting herself ready, uh, being the right uh, person for, for this groom and a whole lot of uh, very ornate uh, uh, the involved processes of getting her dress ready and her jewelry and her uh, bridesmaids and all of the work. And many of you, anybody that's been married and tried to plan a wedding, uh, it takes some time. And it certainly did back then. And then the second phase was the presentation phase. So when the time had come for the actual wedding, the, the uh, groom would go with all of his entourage and go to the house the, of the father of the, the bride and he would go and collect his bride. And he would carry her back to his father's house where they would have a very brief ceremony, a marriage ceremony. And it was a great celebration, of course. And then after that had taken place, a huge feast would be laid out for everyone to enjoy. And these feasts would go on for days sometimes. And uh, at that point, uh, all the company of the, the friends, family, the entourage, the bride and groom would have this tremendous feast. And at that point, the groom would present his bride for everyone to see and to enjoy just the, her beauty. Now, it's interesting because um, in these phases, we also have a very clear teaching about us the Bride of Christ. And the parallels are, are not by mistake, they're intended by God, because as believers, we are also are betrothed to Christ. We are in the engagement phase of our relationship with God. This phase is a time of getting to know Him. It's a time of preparation. Right now, the Bible says that even now, He is preparing a place for us in His Father's house. He's getting it ready. He's building it. I, I don't know how long can it take God, who in, the, in six days made everything in all of creation, and yet for 2,000 years he's been preparing a place for us in his father's house. It's going to be quite something. Now, the dowry was a bit of a problem because we had nothing to offer God. So the bridegroom himself stepped forward and presented the dowry in his sacrifice life on the cross. And this reception or the presentation when the bridegroom will come to the, to the house of the, of the bridegroom or the groom, I'm sorry, the bride, is Jesus coming at the time of the rapture, coming to collect us and to take us back to him. And then finally we have the wedding feast, which is going to be the great celebration and the final phase and the consummation of this final union between God and ourselves. But right now we are in that engagement phase. And... It's difficult for me to describe quite how significant this was when all of this hit me one time about maybe 10 years ago to realize that I was engaged to Christ. That's a little hard for a guy to, to deal with. You know, it took me a little while. I had to get over that hurdle of, you know, thinking of God as a man and me being the bride. But once I was able to kind of get over that, for the women it's easy. They're like all over that. Oh, he's my husband. And I'm thinking, well, that's a little harder for guys. But, um, but once I got over that, I realized that if I'm his bride and we're engaged, then I got to be like this with him. Only him. Everything is Jesus. I'm not looking around and trying to make you know, my life count here and count here in other areas of the world. No, I'm, I'm consumed with preparing myself for God. Doing his will on earth, but preparing myself to be 
this is hard for me to even say, a pure virgin set apart for him alone. But that's what the Bible teaches that we are to be, is that we will be set alone apart for God, for no others. And so it's, it's a really remarkable passage uh, that uh, we've got recorded here. And we're also told that, that this uh, bride is given fine linen. And we fortunately have the interpretation right here. It stands for the righteous acts of the saints. And in scripture, clothing often stands for the spiritual condition of a person's life. Now there are two dimensions of this uh, that I want to talk about just briefly. The first dimension is the garment of salvation. That is a free gift. The Bible says that when you receive Christ as Savior, when you understand the message of life, that there's sin in your life, and that God alone can forgive it through His Son Jesus, that Jesus paid the price, at that point, the Bible says that you have been clothed with the righteous garments of Jesus Christ. You are absolutely pure immediately before God. And it has absolutely nothing to do with you or with me and everything to do with the sacrifice of Christ. But what the text is talking about here is slightly different because it's talking about the righteous acts of the saints. It's in the plural, so it means more than one. It means a a, a lot of righteous acts of the saints. And there is also in the Bible uh, recorded for us the garments of righteousness in terms of the fruit of those who have been transformed by God's salvation. So it's not righteous acts that save us, but righteous acts should be an evidence that we've actually been saved. So for a believer who's actually been transformed by the power of God and has been converted, what should be evidence, not just to a few people, but everyone around them, is a transformation. And part of that transformation is that they begin doing things that God has, as according to Scripture, prepared in advance for us to do for His glory. And so God has all kinds of things for you to do. You know that even today, this afternoon, He has planned for you to do deeds of righteousness for His glory. And you don't know what they are yet. And I don't know what mine are yet. But they're out there waiting. Because he's prepared them in in advance for you to walk in. And it's up to us whether we want to walk in them or not. But the Bible says that as we do, not only do we have the clothing and the garments of Jesus Christ, and that purity that comes with those clothings, but also the Bible says in some strange way that we can actually participate in that clean white linen through walking in those good deeds that God says he has prepared in advance for us to walk in. Now this angel in verse 9 tells John to write some things down and this is what he says Blessed are those who were invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb and he added these are the true words of God. Blessed means oh how happy. That's a wonderful word. Oh, how happy. It's just like pure bliss to be invited to this wedding supper of the Lamb. And if anyone is confused about it, John, I'm sure John is just blowing his mind and he's thinking, is this even possible? Is this even possible? And so the angel, because of the remarkable nature of this invitation and the grace of God that's extended, this angel says and affirms, these are the true words of God. John, you can count on this. This is actually true. You are invited. And what, you know, blows my mind is that I'm invited. I know myself. I know my weaknesses. I know my sin. I know my past. I know what I'm like. And yet I'm invited. And you're invited. And the angel says, 
This is absolutely true. As remarkable as it may be, it will happen. Now at this, John falls to worship this angel. He is really overwhelmed by the invitation and by the power and presence of this angel that he actually falls down and worships. It's proskuneo, the same word that we studied before of prostrating himself before this angel. And this angel rebukes him and says, Do not do it. Now there's an application for us here in Christianity. For we must not worship anyone but God. Never. Not angels, not demons, not dead saints, certainly not pastors or spiritual leaders, no matter how godly or anointed they may be. This was a problem that Paul addressed in 1 Corinthians when there were people saying, Hey, I'm, I'm of Paul. And no, I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. And they weren't identifying themselves with Christ. And they were, they were becoming followers of men rather than followers of God. And the Bible prohibits that. Now, there's nothing wrong with appreciating God's work in, in, in and through the life of another person. But worship is reserved for only God. No person. And this happens quite often. You know, you have a very powerful and charismatic leader. And he's on TV and he's got all kinds of books. And, and people begin following this guy around the country and attending every service, hoping either to get healed or blessed or get something from this person. And that, the Bible says that that is very close to idolatry. And so it's important that we not become followers of, of spiritual leaders or of men or of angels or of anyone else, but we be, become worshipers and followers of only God. That's the only one who deserves worship. He's the only one that is appropriate to worship. And then the angel commands him after saying, Don't worship me. He says, Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. And this worship of God, is, it's, he's not suggesting it. He's not saying, gee, you know, you know don't, don't do that. You're, you're embarrassing me. You know, get out of it. Hey, get out. You're embarrassing me. Yeah, I'm, I'm great. I'm something. Yeah, but you're embarrassing. No, he says, don't do it. It's wrong. Worship God. And it's in the command form. And it, it means do it right now. Turn your attention right now, John, from me. Don't do what you're doing. Turn it from me to God. He is the only one that is to be worshipped. And I really believe this is a mark of a, of a godly leader or a godly uh, servant of God is that they deflect inappropriate praise and worship back to God. I've, I've had times in the past, and maybe you can relate to this, where I was just really moved by someone's message um, or someone's ministry or some gift in terms of God using them in the body of Christ or outside the body of Christ. And, and I would go to that person and I would say, oh, I just have to tell you that God used you significantly in my heart today. And they say, oh, no, no, don't say that. Don't say that. It wasn't me. It's not me. You know, they kind of get embarrassed. They get embarrassed. You know what I'm saying? And you almost feel like you did something bad by saying thank you. Anybody ever have that happen where you almost feel like you got rebuked? And uh, I've had that happen to me. I learned something from a gentleman named Christy Wilson. He was the missions professor at Gordon-Conwell, the seminary I attended uh, back in Massachusetts. And I'll never forget Christy. He, he never told me this. He modeled it for me. We were, I was involved in a lot of the chapel services at seminary. And uh, we would pray before and afterwards. And quite often, because of the power of Christy Wilson's messages, not because of Christy, but because he was a man of prayer, and God anointed him, He's dead now. But he would preach and the whole seminary would just be blown away by the power of God. And 
God, the Spirit of God would be working in our hearts in such a powerful way and students would line up afterwards and I would stand there with him and, and uh, just to be there to, to do whatever he needed me to do for him and uh, the students would come and just you know, say, thank you, you'll never know how much that means you know, and go on and on and on and, and Christy, rather than rebuking him, would say, I'm so glad that you were ministered to. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. He was just this long line. Praise the Lord. Thank you. You know, thank you for your encouragement. Thank you. Praise the Lord. God is good. And that was his response. Afterwards, he would say, Bob, come and pray with me. So he would go in his office and he would get on his knees and I would kneel with him. And he would hold his hands out to God like this. And he would say, God, you've heard. You've seen the heart of your people. And all of their praise and all of their thanks I offer back to you for your glory and your honor. Started modeling after that, that same principle. And so someone who truly knows God and is truly a servant of God won't make people feel like they sinned by being appreciative. But at the same time, they don't inappropriately receive or become deceived into thinking that there is anything in them that could possibly warrant such appreciation. But they acknowledge it's from God and they return it as a sacrifice, a fragrant aroma to God in His presence. And so that's the kind of men and women that I would encourage us to be as well as God uses you. Is, you know, there's nothing wrong with saying thank you. I'm so glad that God ministered to you. But then quickly and quietly, privately, get alone with God and offer whatever has come to you back to God because it belongs to Him. Now John says in verse 11, he begins a description of Jesus Christ and I'm going to have to go through this quite quickly. But he saw heaven standing open. So he's able to actually look into heaven and see what's happening there. And what he saw was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. And of course, this is none other than Jesus Christ. And with justice, he judges and makes war. And of course, he's making war against the enemies of Jesus Christ and of the kingdom of God. We're told that his eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. That's interesting, this blazing fire, it, uh, it has to do with the fact that no one is going to escape his searching and penetrating judgment. He's omniscient. He knows everything. It's foolish for any of us, any time, to try to hide from God. It, it, we don't have to con God. We don't have to... You can't snow God. It's just impossible because He already knows everything about us. So the best thing to do is just to come clean before Him every single time we're in His presence. Just be honest about our condition and where we are, what we need. And God will honor that and He will help us move forward. In Hebrews, we're told that nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. He has crowns that are, are not uh, crowns, Stephanos crowns of victory in terms of like the believers have. No, He's got a diadem. That is a different type of crown. It's for sovereignty, it's for royalty, and it's meant for Jesus Christ alone. Now, he also had a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. Now, this is interesting because it's not simply a name that nobody understood. I mean, we don't even know what the name is. It's not even recorded for us. So, there's really not much I can say on it. What I will say is the time will come when we will know that name. And we will be able to worship God 
and say amen. I agree. That's one of the frustrations about speaking any language. There is no language on earth that's appropriate and powerful enough and broad enough to worship God. And I, I find myself stumbling along with these limited words that I have and the limited words that we have to try to properly praise God. And sometimes I just yell. I just, at the top of my lungs, I just shout out, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Because there's, what else can you say? What else can you say to God that's appropriate? But there's going to come a time when we're going to find out a new name that we will be able to shout out. And it's going to be very satisfying. The good news is that Ephesians 2 says that in the coming ages, God is going to show us the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Jesus Christ. And so there's all this wealth, all this incredible wisdom of God, the power of God. We're just scratching, we're like scratching the surface of the globe with a fingernail in our knowledge of God. And we're going to have all of eternity to get to know Him and to praise Him and to worship Him. And trust me, you're not going to be bored. You're, every day you're going to be blown away if we have days there. It's just going to be astounding. And God is going to let us enter into that type of continuous praise and worship. And it will be wonderful. In verse 13, we're told that He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And His name is the Word of God. Some have said that this robe dipped in blood references... Jesus' blood shed on, the, on Calvary, I think that's possible, but not nearly as likely as that it's the blood of Christ's defeated foes. I don't have time to read it, but in your own time, you might want to look up Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 3. It talks, uh, Isaiah is actually having a conversation with the Lord, and the Lord says, you know, Isaiah says, how come your clothes are all dirty? And I'm, this is my own paraphrase. How come your clothes are so stinking dirty? And, and, uh, and the Lord says, hey, these are the, this blood is spattered up on all over my clothes and stained. And the word is actually bapto from baptizo, which is like, you know, where we get our word baptized from. I've been baptized in the blood of my enemies. He's just been covered as he's tread the winepress of God's wrath. And we're told that his name is the word of God. Now, we know that Jesus is the Word of God, but this is the only place in Scripture where this actual phrase is attributed to Christ. In John chapter 1, verse 1, we know that it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But now we have Christ identified as the Word of God. He Himself is the embodiment, the manifestation of God Himself. And so when you see Christ, you see God. Now, I remember as a younger believer, I kind of felt like... Uh, you know, God the Father was the bad cop and Jesus was the good cop. Anybody ever feel like that? This kind of fear and trembling of God and, oh, Jesus, protect me, you know? No. If you know Jesus of this New Testament Scripture, then you know God because that is God's heart. You're just seeing different perspectives and different dimensions of their ministries. But if you know Jesus, then you know God. And He is the Word of God. Now, in verse 14, we're told that the armies of heaven... We're following him, following Christ, riding on white horses as well and dressed in linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule, rule them with an iron scepter. And he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings. You know, you have to kind of make a big capital K for the first one and a small K for the second one. He is king over all kings. He is the capital L, Lord over all little lords. 
He is the only one. He reigns and rules. And I say, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! John says that in verse 17 that he saw this angel standing in the sun who cried out in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, mighty men, horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. This is a totally different supper. I want to make this very clear. The wedding supper of the Lamb is the consummation of the matrimonial experience between Christ and His bride. It's a celebration. The great supper of God is an invitation to the beasts of the air, or I'm sorry, the birds of the air to come and devour the flesh following the battle that the Bible refers to as Armageddon. There will be over 200 million men annihilated by not some weapon of mass destruction, but the Bible says by the very word of God. His word will slay them. And that whole valley of Megiddo that we've talked about, 180 miles long and about 15 miles wide, will be filled with the blood of the enemies of God. And that's actually recorded for us in Ezekiel 39, verses 17 through 20. And I just want to encourage us. We have a choice. You have a choice even today that you can accept God's grace and be a part of the wedding supper of the Lamb or you will be supper. That's the choice. You can eat it or you can get eaten. I know what God's will for all of us is. I know what God's will for the whole world is. Is that we would all be there with Him. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He doesn't delight in anyone's suffering. But He gives mankind, every man, every woman, every young person, the choice to choose which supper they'll be attending. Now, verse 19 through the end tells us about the end of the beast. John says, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on his horse and his army. But the beast was captured. I mean, do you, do you see what's happening here? I mean, all this, this huge, massive army builds up, 200 million plus, And they come with the power of, of Satan himself, with the beast, with the false prophet. And somehow they've deluded themselves into thinking in their arrogance and their pride that they can defeat Christ. They're no match. There isn't even a contest. It just says it's over. It doesn't even seem to begin and it's over. In the text here it says that, that uh, but the beast was captured and with him the false prophet. It doesn't, I don't see any struggle here. I don't see any war even taking place. I just see these guys immediately captured. And with these signs, the, this, uh, this false prophet, miraculous signs, it deceived the world into worshiping the image. And the Bible says that the two of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire, burning with sulfur. These are the very first two inhabitants of hell. You know, some have, uh, whenever we read cartoons, and I, I'm a, a particular fan of, uh, of um, what's his name? Somebody help me. You guys know my warped mind. Um, Farside, thank you. I love Farside. And every time you see a Farside cartoon with hell, who's in charge? Satan's in charge. He's, you know, bossing people around. That's not the way it's going to be. He will be the chief victim along with the beast and the, and the uh, false prophet. And they actually, in this text, uh, were told that they will be the first 
victims. Now in verse 21, we're told that after they've been thrown into this burning lake of fire, the rest of them uh, were killed, all the rest of these armies that were uh, uh, coming against the Christ, and they were killed with a sword that came out of the mouth of the rider of the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh, which will be a fulfillment of prophecy. This is powerful. It's a wonderful thing that's coming for those of us that know Jesus. You know that even now, He's preparing that place for you. For us, as His corporate body. Even now, He wants us to be preparing ourselves for Him. He doesn't want us being unfaithful to Him, committing spiritual adultery, having our attention drawn by this thing and that thing of the world. But He wants our hearts to be solely for Him, completely given to Him, nothing held back. He paid the the price in full. The dowry has already been taken care of. And quickly, He will come back for us at the rapture of the church. And He will take us in His arms and carry us home. And finally, we will be with the Lord forever. It's a glorious thing. It is. I'm coming to that. I encourage you, this time of uh, engagement is sometimes difficult. The waiting period, uh, what's interesting about um, weddings in the ancient East is that the bride never knew when the groom was coming. It was to be a surprise. It was part of the excitement of the moment. Her job was to be ready. She always had to be prepared and ready. He could come at any time. And so when he was finished with the house and he was finished with his preparation, which she wasn't clued in on, she wasn't allowed to know when it was done or or his progress, is that he would come and surprise her. And if she was ready, he would take her and carry her home. In this time of engagement for us, the temptation is is to say, when is he going to come? We've waited a long time. He's not here yet. And to busy ourselves with other things besides preparing ourselves for him besides keeping ourselves set apart for Him, besides keeping ourselves pure for Him alone. But soon it will be over. And the moment will come, and it's all of a sudden going to be upon us, and He will sweep us away and rescue us from the coming tribulation, and we will be with Him forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And to that I say, Hallelujah! Father, we thank you and we worship you. And Lord, we can't believe you chose us. We can't believe that you've picked us out specially. God, we can't believe that you paid the price that we might have life in you. We can't believe that you've given us the opportunity and you actually want to hear our praises. We can't believe that you're preparing a place for us in your Father's house. And that one day, not long from now, it could be today, it could be tomorrow, it could be a year from now, but one day, not long from now, you will come. And the Bible says, even in the parable of the ten virgins, that some will be caught off guard and ill-prepared. And the bridegroom will say, I don't know you. Lord, help us to be men and women who are ready. Who are ready every moment of every day for that surprise, that wonderful visitation when you will take us home and we will be with you forever. God, we thank you and we honor you and we worship you today in Jesus' name. Amen.